These are the daily lectionary comments for January the 25th. We're starting a new book, the prophet Zechariah, beginning at verse 1. Uh, and uh, we're going to take a look at when Zechariah is preaching and uh, the nature of apocalyptic um, uh, uh, scripture. Then also Romans chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, very similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Uh, and, and that is not causing uh, damage in the kingdom of God by the things that we approve. All right, Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah is one of two uh, prophets that preached in the immediate post-exilic time. So in other words, after Cyrus the Great uh, of Persia conquered Babylon, he allowed the Israelites to return to their homeland of Judah and even supplied out of the treasury of, uh, of the Persians money to begin rebuilding their temple. This happened in about uh, 536, 535 BC. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah both preached uh, at that time, that is in, in the next 10 or 15 years. Um, Zechariah specifically is preaching around 520. So this would have been about 14, 15, maybe 16 years after the people first got back into, uh, into Judah and approximately four years before the second temple was completed. Remember, the first temple was destroyed in 587, and it's 70 years later, and it's about to be rebuilt. Um, it's a much smaller uh, temple, and uh, the prophet Haggai had a lot to do with speeding things along and getting, getting it built anyway. But nevertheless, uh, that's the rough, roughly the time. Now, Zechariah, uh, first off, um, uh, you'll note that this, this reading begins with a very basic call to repentance. You can imagine that a post-exilic prophet uh, would, uh, would very much emphasize this, and that's in verse 3. Return to me, and I will return to you, declares the Lord. All right, so this is post-punishment. You have been sent to your room. You have been spanked and sent to your room. Uh, you've sat up there, and you've thought about it for a while. Now you're allowed to come out of your room. Uh, and the first thing that that father says, essentially, is, are you sorry? Uh, because we want to make up, and you say, I am sorry, I won't do that again, and there's hugs, and we go about our business. It's a little bit like that. Return to me, and I will return to you. Don't be like your fathers. I sent prophet after prophet to them. They ignored and blew them all off. You see what happened. You see what happened to them. You don't want that to happen to you, and uh, Zachariah essentially acknowledges that people have repented, okay? They have gotten the message. That's how Zechariah begins. But after that, Zechariah gets uh, a little bit uh, different uh, and a little bit more in the line of what is sometimes called apocalyptic scripture or apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic uh, uh, is a style of, of writing uh, where a prophet sees visions uh, or is whisked away to see things uh, he often will be accompanied with a like an angelic a tour guide. I mean, think of Ezekiel and then how he was whisked to, to see the temple and had a tour guide with him explaining this and that. Um, Daniel also uh, is very, very similar. He's seeing visions uh, and, and having uh, angels uh, interpret for him. The book of Revelation is filled with this. John is being shown vision after vision after vision. And there are various angels that are speaking uh, to him and explaining what he's seeing. That's apocalyptic. Uh, and and Zechariah uh, is, is very much like that in parts. So what we're going to have here in these first eight chapters, 
also notice that Zechariah really divides into two uh, books. The first eight chapters uh, really are very different in style than, than the last four chapters. Um, the, the first eight chapters are visions and all written in prose, and the last four chapters uh, are uh, all poetic and dramatic and are mostly concerning things in the distant future. Well, we'll talk about that when we get there. Right now, we have visions. The first vision he sees is a horse, a red horse and with a rider on it. Uh, and then there are other horses behind him. And so we have these, these angelic uh, horses and, they, uh, and they're standing there. And then there's another angel and the other angel is there interpreting this for him. These uh, have been going throughout the earth and, uh, and, and patrolling the world. And they are reporting back that the world is at rest. Uh, this is kind of important. The nations are in a period of somewhat of, of peace. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, Judea is ravaged, but now at peace anyway. So he reports that. We'll come back to that in just a second. Then there is another uh, being, the angel of the Lord, it says, and this is different. The angel of the Lord is not the same as the angel that is interpreting the image. And that's not the same as the angels that are sitting on the horses. So the angel of the Lord, interestingly, uh, uh, the, the, the angels on the horses are talking to the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord talks to God and he says, how long, O Lord, will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? Um, he's interceding for, for uh, Jerusalem. And then the word comes back and the angel of the Lord explains to Zechariah the comforting words that he received from the Lord. It's really kind of a beautiful thing. But this angel of the Lord will appear again throughout uh, Zechariah. So, uh, uh, the, these these uh, angels on horses are patrolling the earth, uh, and they see that uh, everything is relatively at peace. Uh, but then we find out that God is angry. He's very, very angry uh, with all those nations of the world at peace. And he is very, very jealous for his people that are still ravaged and really beaten up by the exile. And essentially, it's very interesting, such a human way of speaking, even though we're talking about God. And God basically saying... Uh, that yes, yes, they were my instruments to punish uh, 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 Jerusalem. So they did what I wanted in that regard. However, they enjoyed it too much. They relished it too much and they went too far. And for that reason, God is now very jealous for his people and very angry uh, with the nations. So that's one vision. The next vision is a four horns and four craftsmen. Uh, the four horns uh, are symbolic of four kings or four kingdoms or four, four powers on earth. It's not described further what they are, only to say that these are four powers that are among the nations that God is angry with. And then we have the four craftsmen, and the four craftsmen are there to terrify the four horns. So in other words, God's plan is, is uh, to uh, bring about vengeance upon the nations for being a little too zealous in, in uh, dealing with his people is now pictured with these horns and craftsmen. Um, uh, but... At, at base, this is a very similar kind of uh, prophecy that we saw over and over again in uh, in Jeremiah, for example, uh, that uh, and, and in other prophets too. It's, it's actually a very common thing that God will use the nations to punish His people, and then once once that is done, uh, He will come to the aid of His people. His His jealousy and His love for His people will be stirred up. Then He will become angry at the nations who, who, who ravaged his people and he will punish them severely for what they've done. And that's exactly what Zechariah is saying here. So very much in the uh, uh, prophetic uh, uh, line of thought. It's just the visions are a little bit different, a little bit like Ezekiel, 
uh, a lot like Daniel, especially the latter part of Daniel. Okay, well, that's enough for Zechariah today. All right, Romans chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. This, uh, this is an easy chapter to get confused with 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 8 and chapter 9. Particularly chapter 8 um, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking a lot about the weaker brother and how to deal with the weaker brother and, and, and not to harm the weaker brother uh, because you, of your knowledge. You have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Those sorts of things that he's talking about there. Uh, and and in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's talking about how he is an apostle. Uh, does not take advantage of all of his rights in in order in in, uh, in so in other words that just as he is an apostle for the sake of the church doesn't take advantage of all of his rights that he might have so also individual Christians do not take advantage of all their rights in order to protect and preserve fellow Christians and that's the same basic idea that we're having here he says essentially uh, do not destroy um, uh, what the work that God has has done, God's work, uh, by causing them to stumble, for example, for the sake of food. Now, food, or whether you consider one day more important than another, um, what what Paul is talking about is, in general, what we uh, theologians might refer to and often refer to as adiaphoron. Adiaphoron are indifferent matters. And by indifferent matters, it means that the word of God does not command, nor does it forbid a particular thing. You may do it. You don't have to do it. There may be good reasons to do it. There may be good reasons not to do it. But in the end, it, it's, it's our choice. We have freedom to do that. And you can consider a lot of the practices in Christian worship uh, and how we worship and in the church year and all of this. Um, let's take for a simple example, should we celebrate uh, uh, Christmas Eve on December 24th? Um, we don't have to. There's no commandment to do that. Uh, we could put it on a different day. The Eastern Church celebrates uh, Christ's birth on Epiphany. Uh, or we could not have that celebration at all. It's an indifferent matter it, uh, in the sense that there may be good reasons to do it, but there's no command to do it, and you don't sin not to do it. So what Paul is talking about is some people uh, don't want to eat meat. For, for some reason or another, or want to consider one day more important than another, like the Sabbath day, for example, or they want to continue observing the, the various festivals of the Old Testament, which are no longer commanded for us Christians in the New Testament. Same kind of an idea. You can do them if you want. It is no sin to do them. You cannot do them if you don't want. It is no sin not to do them. But uh, it's likewise, it's no sin if you don't want to eat meat anymore. Not so much because you're an animal rights lover, but you're practicing a kind of aestheticism. You, you are not eating meat because you are denying yourself. Maybe a Christian today might say, I'm not going to eat meat during Lent. You could do that. And it's perfectly fine to do that. What Paul is talking about is to be careful in the things that we choose to do or not to do and to recognize that we don't want to have arguments over things like this. We don't want to divide the church over things like this. We don't want to cause our brothers and sisters in the church to stumble because we're having fights over this. And some people think you absolutely positively have to do it this way. And others say you absolutely cannot. Uh, and then pretty soon we make a mountain out of a molehill and, and uh, churches get divided and Christians get hurt. And we're arguing over things about which Christ made no command. And that's the key thing. And that's why he's saying, I, I don't want, uh, I don't want such things to become 
uh, matters of division and harming. That's why you know, do not destroy the work of God um, for the sake of food because you want to eat and you want to celebrate God because he makes all things clean. And because he makes all things clean, I can have a nice steak and a glass of wine with my steak and I don't have to feel guilty about it. Uh, but then for some reason or another, here's another person that says, no, uh, we should honor God by abstaining from such things. Uh, and so he, one is offended by the other. Uh, one may think that it's sinful, the other not. Or it may be a matter that neither one thinks it's sinful, but they're willing to go to war with one another over it. The key thing that Paul is is talking about here, though, that we all have to bear in mind, is that Christ's church is an incredibly important thing. And it consists of people for whom Christ died. And we must be very, very careful that we do not injure and harm people in the church because of our particular tastes or our particular opinions. Where God has made a command, well, we may not have a choice. In our Lutheran church, we are certainly not uh, going to accept somebody that comes forward and says we shouldn't baptize infants. We absolutely are going to baptize infants, and no matter how offended a person gets, we are certainly going to do that. That is not a matter of adiaphora. That is a matter of the command of God, and therefore those who don't baptize infants are wrong, and those who do baptize infants are doing according to the will of God. That's not what we're talking about here. But we may be talking about uh, should, should we use the liturgical practices uh, or should we have a more contemporary style of worship? Now understand that we do not have a command from God that we must do it one way, can't do it the other. That doesn't mean that there's not any good reasons why we should do it one way or the other. And also, if we decide, let's suppose we decide tomorrow we don't need to do all this liturgical stuff, so we're just going to become this a straightforward uh, praise and worship uh, contemporary uh, uh, church. I can argue that God has not forbidden us to do that, and God hasn't commanded a liturgical worship, um, but I'm not done yet. I, I, have to, I have to show that the one is, is better or not worse, and it might be that I cause a great deal of offense by trying to force a style of worship on people that people don't want, and people didn't grow up with, and people don't find worshipful. Maybe in another context they would, but not in this one. So Luther talks about how it, during the time of the Reformation, that there were a lot of ancient traditions that were changed, things that people had done from time immemorial, and the reformers were changing them. And Luther cautioned about this, that we not go too fast, that we not change things willy-nilly. And sometimes, even when there was a command of God and there was some danger there, you still had to be careful not to cause harm. So if, if the reformers are going to start smashing statues of Mary in the church because some people are praying to Mary and we know we're not supposed to pray to Mary, but those statues have been there for hundreds of years and the church is filled with people who have always had those statues there. And rather than just smashing the statues and horrifying everybody, perhaps it would be better to teach and teach and teach that we don't pray to Mary then at some point, maybe people stop praying to Mary and the statues are no longer a stumbling block. Or maybe we get to the point where we don't need to have those statues in such a place where people might be tempted to pray to them, but the people now have been taught and so it is no longer a cause for offense. So there's all kinds of issues like this. Paul is uh, wanting us to remind, uh, to remind us that the church is filled with people for whom Christ died, they're God's work, and we must be very, very careful in our zeal to do things the way we want 
that we not cause injury for those for whom Christ died. 